do something you love and be the best at it and find your own niche. You got to find a way to distinguish yourself from the competition. At Carl's and Hardy's, we did that. Uh, we introduced something called the $6 burger, which was a burger that cost, it was a $6 burger, only $3.99. And I remember our Coca-Cola representative came to me when I when we came out with this idea and said, you know, Andy, you can't sell a burger at a fast food restaurant for $4. And I said, yeah, but we're gonna advertise it as worth $6. <laughs> so we had these advertisements, uh, Carl's and Hardy's, a $6 burger, only $3.99. And, uh, and quite honestly, it sold like hotcakes. Uh, it really, they really saved the company. It was the basis for our recovery. So you have to find some way to distinguish yourself. So people want to drive by, in our case, drive past the McDonald's, drive past a Wendy's, drive past a Burger King, an In-N-Out, a Five Guys, a Shake Shack. Why would I drive past those to get to a Hardee's or a Carl's? Well, if you can answer that for your business, whatever business you're in, uh, you're probably going to be successful. My guest today is Andy Puzder. Andy's the former CEO of CKE Restaurants, where he helped turn Hardee's and Carl's Jr. into the fast food powerhouses that they are today. He is credited with turning around both the Hardee's brand and CKE. He set the stage for the company to survive, becoming financially secure, return to growth, and employ tens of thousands of people. Under his leadership, CKE has expanded to 3,700 restaurants globally. Andy is also a prolific author. His articles have appeared in the Wall Street Journal, Forbes, and Real Clear Politics. He has also made videos for PragerU on capitalism and free markets, which have millions of views. One of those videos, he goes point by point showing how Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez AOC does not understand socialism or capitalism. That one video alone has close to 21 million views. I recently sat down with Andy to talk about getting America back to work and his concerns for America over the next four years. Andy, I want to thank you so much for being on the show. I greatly appreciate your time. In fact, I've been looking forward to this. Uh, since I started watching your videos on PragerU, just blew me away. Well, thanks, Charles. It's a it's a pleasure to be here, and uh, uh, those videos are great to do. It's uh, there at PragerU is a wonderful spot. Okay, so Andy, I want to start from the beginning with you because there is so much about you from being the uh, I think you were right in the running for Secretary of Labor, President Trump's first Secretary of Labor. Uh, you had an amazing career as an attorney. You were CEO of Hardee's and Carl's Jr.'s at a critical time in their business where everything looked pretty bleak and you turned that around to make it into a powerhouse today. And now you're just spreading amazing, amazing work with uh, your latest two broadsides. One is getting America back to work and your other one is it's time to let America work again. I just wanna share with our, our uh, listeners what a broadside is. It's almost like what Thomas Paine Common sense, right? Right. <laughs> it's That's exactly what they're intended to be. It's a small little booklet for just a few dollars with around 40 or 50 pages, around 5,000 or so words. And what I love about it, you your writing style is just enjoyable. You get right to the point. For well, a, thank you. For an attorney, that's a rare thing to have. <laughs> All, right. All right. So, Andy, go, let's go start from the beginning. You grew up really in the heartland of America, right? I did. Uh, my family was a working class family out of Cleveland, Ohio. My dad was a car salesman. My grandfather came to this country in the 
early 1900s and worked construction till he passed away during the depression. So uh, we, you know, we, we were a working class family. It's, uh, uh, we, I aspired to be more and thank God I lived in a country where I could be more. Uh, but no, we, it was uh, just a normal kind of Cleveland upbringing. And you went, you, your first, uh, you were one of the first in your family, I believe you were telling me to go to college. Yeah, I was the first one to graduate from college uh, in, in the, uh, you know, that we know of. Who, I don't know if there were people in Europe who ever did, but I doubt it. Uh, but I, I definitely was the first one in the United States to graduate. Now, my brothers graduated after me and I had some cousins that graduated, but uh, it was uh, my privilege to be the first one to go. I went to Kent State University, in Cle- uh, which was south of where I grew up for two years. I left about a semester after the shootings uh, in uh, 1970. And then took three years off and played in rock and roll bands and went back to school at Cleveland State University and uh, and graduated from there in 1975. What instruments you play? Uh, guitar, bass, vocals. I could sing harmony, which you know kind of made you very valuable back in those days. So oh. played guitar a little, sang a little, and uh, made enough to get through school. That's great, man. That is absolutely great. So you went to school and you wanted to be a lawyer from when you were a little kid, or that's something that you just fell into. Yeah, I was about 10 years old. I was arguing with my mother and she said, you'd make a great lawyer. And I said, what's a lawyer? <laughs> and from then on, uh, I kind of had it in the back of my head that uh, being a lawyer is what I wanted to do. So, and the more I learned, I, I loved history. It was always my favorite subject in school and my major in college. And uh, the more I studied, the more I learned, the more I realized uh, being a lawyer was the, the right thing for me. So I want to ask you one thing, because my family, very similar to yours, my grandparents came here. They were first generation. Uh, my my uh, parents were rather first generation. They were immigrants. They came here with virtually right. nothing. They came in steerage. Uh, I'm sure your parents, your grandparents didn't come on an ocean liner and, you know, on nope. the top deck. <laughs> and uh, they came to this country not speaking the language, not having any money. What is it about this country that can take people from any part of the world plant them anywhere, and they grow like weeds. What's the opportunities that uh, a capitalist system provides? I mean, it it gives everybody the opportunity to move forward with their lives. There's no restrictions on how far you can go. There's no restrictions based on your class or your your race or your, your, you know, your your religion, your place of national origin. Um, My grandparents both came here from uh, the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Uh, really escaped. You know, I'm sure they walked to whatever whatever ocean liner they took, and and uh, as you said, in steerage, they came to the United States. They got jobs. They started to build families. My grandfather, you know, his his greatest dream was to own a piece of land uh, and raise his family. Ended up when he died, and he died in uh, in the late 1930s during the Depression. But he owned his own home. He worked a job as a construction worker. He had a wife and two children. Uh, things that really would never have happened back in uh, back in his native land. So it, it really is the land of opportunity. And you really build a basis on which future generations can grow and develop. And, uh, you know, thank God my dad was a World War II combat vet, uh, went on to be a car salesman and uh, and was successful at that, ended up with a part ownership and a car dealership by the time I was in my uh, in my late 20s. Uh, and so th- these are the kinds of things that people can do in the United States that you really can't do other places. So, so why is it that there's a very vocal, I, I got to say minority because it can't be a majority, uh, a vocal minority 
that is saying that America is not the land of opportunity. It's a land of, of discrimination, of systemic racism, of inequality, economic inequality. What's, what are they missing? Uh, well, what you're really missing, they're missing the whole nature of capitalism. And I think, I, I, don't, I don't think the people who promote that don't understand what's going on in this country. I think the people on the far left understand exactly what they're doing. Uh, as has been the case with uh, uh, with people throughout history, they're they're out there trying to get power. They want to centralize power in the government, then they want to take over the government. You know, Bernie Sanders, you're talking about uh, we're going to raise taxes, we're going to bring in more money, we're going to make the government bigger, we're going to make the government more powerful, and it's going to help you. And by the way, I want you to put me in charge of that government that I want you to make bigger and more powerful and give more money to. Well, what what they miss what people miss when they listen to him, when they accept what he says and what his ilk say about how the country should be run, they really miss the basis of a capitalist system, which is the way you succeed in a capitalist system is by meeting the needs of other people. Now, you always hear about how capitalism is based on greed. Well, it's not. It's based on meeting other people's needs. I mentioned my grandfather. My grandfather, as I said, probably walked to catch the ocean liner that brought him to the United States. He came in 1912. By 1920, he owned a car, thanks to Henry Ford, thanks to Ford going forward and meeting the needs of people. Now, that what freedom that gave him. It gave him freedom as to where he lived, as to where he worked. It gave him freedom what, what he wanted to do with his spare time. It, it was an incredible invention. Henry Ford became very wealthy, but he became very wealthy because he met the needs of a broad base of people. It's like Jeff Bezos with Amazon. Jeff Bezos didn't steal money from us. You keep hearing about well, he became a trillionaire or billionaire in this uh, pandemic. Well, he didn't become a billionaire because he stole money from us. He didn't become a billionaire because he oppressed us and made us work for him, as was the case in uh, other countries prior to the United States. He became wealthy because he gave tremendous benefit to everybody. Uh, so in a capitalist country, the way you succeed is by meeting the needs of other people. In a socialist country or a country that's dominated where the, where the economy is dominated by the government, the way you succeed, the way you improve your life is getting more for yourself from a limited supply of goods and services that the government makes available. So the, how do you do that? Well, you do that by satisfying the people that are in government. You have to meet their needs. You don't meet the needs of the public in general. You don't meet the needs of your fellow man and fellow woman. You meet the needs of government executives. Then you get more. You get, you get more for yourself. So it's really kind of a greed-based system. You know, I, I always use the example of people standing in line in bread lines, whether it's the Soviet Union or Venezuela or Cuba, any of these socialist countries, you always end up with a bread line. Well, you're not concerned about the person in front of you or behind you. You're not concerned about how to meet their needs, about how to get them more food. You're concerned about getting more food for yourself when you get to the end of that line. That empowers government and it empowers the people that are in government. It doesn't benefit other people. It just benefits people that run the government. So you bring up Amazon, for example. Uh, you're so spot on. For 24 years, people didn't realize, and really till this, uh, this pandemic, that Amazon was a and always focused, Jeff Bezos, always focused on customer-centric. They would do anything for the customer. You say you didn't come, don't worry, we'll credit your account because he understood the lifetime value of the customer and he understood that you take care of the customer, they'll eventually take care of you. And it's just absolutely amazing what a vital part they played in keeping our country running and supply chains moving 
during the pandemic? When you think about Jeff Bezos, he was adopted. His adopted parents financed this business. He started out like, like Steve Jobs in a garage selling books. And he built this tremendous enterprise, which is only a tremendous enterprise because we all benefited from it. It didn't, didn't grow for any other reason. And you think about how would, you, how would we have possibly gotten through this pandemic with any sense of sanity if it hadn't been for Amazon, for Zoom, you know, for Netflix, for Skype, for all that, for, for uh, Uber Eats and DoorDash. For UPS, for UPS, for these, UPS yes, FedEx. FedEx. It's just yep. unbelievable. Yeah. All of these companies were created with the idea that they would benefit us. And, and during this pandemic, it's been tremendous what they've been able to do. It's amazing when people were freaking out. I know I was freaking out. I have Amazon Prime and I have been since they started. I, my, my first thing I ever ordered from Amazon was 1998. It went all the way back. And I looked at the first thing was a book and I ordered like five different books from this one author because I thought the company was going to go out of business. And this is a great thing. Instead of running around to old Barnes and Noble, I could just order five. I was so excited to get this one author. And 22 years later, I, I, I love the company, love the business they have. And Prime, during the pandemic, they were rerouting to get stuff to healthcare workers and, and, and first responders, uh, gowns and masks and all. And I remember how upset I was, and I thought about how stupid, but I was so upset that they were delaying Prime by two days. I would get in the third day or the fourth day. And here, yeah. so it's like, wow, once you have it, it's like, how do you, remember back in the day, and I'm sure you do, when you see TV advertorials, four to six weeks for delivery? Yep. Now things don't come in in two days. I'm like, what's happening? Amazon's really slipping. It's just absolutely well, you know, it, it, it's What's interesting about Amazon is, and, and I'd say three things about it. One is, you know, the fact that you use Amazon isn't going to make you richer. In other words, when we look at income inequality, the fact that Amazon exists doesn't necessarily make you a more wealthy person or increase, but it, increase your income, but it sure improves your life. Just like my dad getting a car or getting an iPhone, that doesn't increase your income necessarily, but it gives you a better standard of life. You get the kinds of things that prior to Amazon, prior to Ford, prior to Apple, only rich, super rich people got it if they had access to it at all. So that's number one. Number two, people criticize Bezos for making so much money with Amazon. By the way, you know, 15, 20 years ago, even 10 years ago, even five years ago, even two years ago, you could have bought a bunch of Amazon stock. You could have bought a really cheap. It was like $10 a share back 15 years ago. If this was something you had faith in, you could, in the United States, you could have invested in that company and you could have made a ton of money even without doing all the work. All and, you had to do was you, believe you, in him. You could have been his partner. That's what the stock is, a piece That's of the exactly business. exactly right. And then the last thing is that Amazon, I heard Sanders criticizing Amazon. Uh, you know, Amazon doesn't pay enough in tax. They make all this money. Well, well, that's because they lost money for years. There's a part of the tax code that says if you have losses in prior years, you can offset them when you start to get profitable. Now, Sanders has been in the Senate for, you know, for decades. Uh, the, uh, uh, the Democrats have been in control of the Senate and of the House for periods of time over the past 20, 30 years since Bill Clinton was elected. That rule has been in place all that time. It, it, you know, and anybody could take advantage of it that was in a business. But Sanders goes out and says Amazon isn't paying enough. When he was asked in a Fox News town hall when he was in the primaries about the money he made selling his book, his response was, yes, I, you know, I made a lot of money, became a millionaire selling the book. He said, if you want to become a millionaire, you should write a best-selling book, too. Well, I thought, what a great country. You know, isn't that wonderful? And then they criticized, I said, you know, you're, you're, 
you're, you know, you only paid what you owed in taxes. You took advantage of the Trump tax cuts. You took every deduction you could. He said, look, I paid what I owed. It was fair. I paid what I owed. Well, you know what? So does Amazon. So these criticisms you hear from the left are baseless. They're derogatory. They're, they're just indicating, they indicate to me a group that wants to seize power, not a group that wants to try and, to, try and find the best solutions for how you run a country or an economy. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And, you know, just getting back to Amazon for a second, uh, making life better. It's, uh, you know, with Costco and Walmart, for example, oh, yeah. bringing prices down, I think that it was one and a half to two percent uh, inflation rate. Uh, they have been able to keep that down simply because of Walmart and Costco and stores like that. Uh, back in the day, there was a, a small town. There was one store you could buy your stuff. That was it. There was no competition. Yes. They could charge whatever they want. And, and one thing near my house, uh, growing up, my kids loved baseball cards and all sorts of, you know, collectible things. There was one store. So you'd have to walk there and have to pay whatever price the proprietor said. There was no choice. I happened to walk by there just a few years ago. And she was lamenting how the business has gone down dramatically because the internet killed it. I said, the internet didn't kill it. It was price discovery. You were one horse. You were able to sell what you want because nobody knew what the price of this collectible was. Now you have competition. It's, it's great. Someone else is making money. You got to be sharper. Well, you have an access, you have access to an incredible number of products. You have the kind of negotiating power that only rich people had formerly. You know, this is all, these are all things that improve our quality of life that make living in this country and then eventually as it spreads to other countries uh, so much better than it was for our forebearers or for my grandparents or even my parents. And I, I don't think people really appreciate what we have. It's a little scary right now that people are willing to risk what we have uh, for these, um, these visions of nirvana uh, that the left tries to sell people that historically have never worked, never worked anywhere at any time. And here you are in the greatest country with the greatest benefits for working people in the history of the world. And, uh, and people don't seem to have the appreciation for it that they should. Yeah, it's just, I think I was reading somewhere that uh, socialism has been tried 42 times and has never worked. Now, it, it's just real, I could use no more than a New York word, chutzpah. It's just nerve to think that this time, these people are going to get it right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it just <laughs> I, it boggles my mind. Okay, so you uh, go to law school. You become a lawyer. How do you end up in the fast food business? Uh, well, it's uh, it's interesting. I, I became a lawyer and was uh, trying lawsuits. I tried large civil cases. Uh, I, I, in other words, I argued about people's money was basically what I did. And uh, one of the individuals I ended up representing was a guy named Carl Karcher. And Carl was an incredible, incredible guy. I was born 1917, same year as uh, as John Kennedy. Came to the United States, uh, came, he moved from Ohio to California, started a uh, fast food chain uh, by buying a hot dog cart. He actually bought a hot dog cart in 1941. Uh, he had to borrow the money to do it. He had to hawk his car. He and his wife took his car to a bank and used his collateral to get a couple hundred bucks to buy this mm -hmm. hot dog stand. Uh, by the time I met him, I met him in 1987. He had a half a billion dollar company. This is a guy with an eighth grade education <clears throat> who just really understood what it took to to uh, to build a business, to make people happy, loved making the food. I ended up representing Carl. Carl got in financial trouble. I got him out of financial trouble by bringing in another uh, client of mine, a guy named Bill Foley, 
and uh, who ran Fidelity National Financial. That's the largest title insurance company in the country. Uh, Bill got Carl out of trouble, uh, brought me, then after that, he brought me in as general counsel at Fidelity, uh, which I served there for about five years. And then Carl's Jr. Uh, got in big trouble. They bought Hardee's and became in very financially distressed. And, uh, and Bill said, uh, you're going to be the president and CEO of Hardee's <laughs> and Carl's Jr. And I, quite honestly, I said, what are you talking about? <laughs> Why would you make me the president and CEO of, uh, of Carl's Jr. and Hardee's? In any event, uh, he did, and uh, it worked out okay. So when you, when you became CEO of, 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 of uh, Hardee's and, and Carl's Jr., how bad was the situation? Well, we had um, 26 banks in our line of credit, and 13 of them had us in workout, which means we want to be paid today. Uh, so so, so we, the, the, we answer, were, the answer is pretty bad. <laughs> the answer is it was uh, it, the, the, actually, I, when, when I was brought in, everybody thought they had brought me in to take the company into bankruptcy uh, or to sell it, because as a lawyer, that was the kind of thing I was doing. After I stopped trying lawsuits, I became a, a corporate transactional lawyer. I did a lot of deals. And they thought I'd been brought in to either take it into bankruptcy or sell it. I realized very quickly about in the first couple of weeks uh, that taking it into bankruptcy, nobody was going to want to buy it for any amount of money. It would have hurt the investors. It would have hurt the banks. It would have hurt the employees. Uh, so I, I couldn't, I really couldn't sell it. Bankruptcy would have done the same thing. It would have just stuck it to the employees, the banks and the investors. So I decided, well, let's see if we can fix it. And uh you know, thank God it worked, because uh, if it didn't, I wouldn't be on this call right mm -hmm. now. <laughs> it would be, uh, I'd be in a much different mm -hmm. situation. So what's the first thing that you did? You, first, you, you walk into your, your first day in, as a CEO, you know the situation, the company's in pretty bad shape. You folks are in a very competitive business. You're competing against McDonald's and Burger Kings of this world, the fast food business, which is a really competitive, tough business. You have your coffee. It's nine o'clock. What's on your list of things to do? Well, luckily, I had some experience uh, representing Carl Karcher for a number of years, and then I had been general counsel of CKE restaurants while I was general counsel at Fidelity. So I knew a little bit about the business and about what they were doing. And generally, what happened was when people grew up in the restaurant industry, they kind of go to the top, they get to be CEO, they'd sit down at the desk, and they'd go, you know, restaurants, don't have to mess with that anymore. What's going on in legal and accounting? <laughs> they would want to know like what was going on and what they didn't understand. When I took over, I pretty much knew what was going on in legal and accounting. What I didn't know was what was going on in the restaurants. And uh, so I started to visit. I, um, I, I didn't have coffee in the office for a couple of months. So I spent a lot of time on the road uh, visiting restaurants, uh, seeing how service was, seeing what the food was like. And it turned out uh, that the service was really bad, the restaurants were dirty, and the food wasn't very good. Wait, wait, hang on so, a second, hang on a second. So you get in your car. How many stores do you have at this time? How many franchise? They're franchisees, right? Or Well, there was, at that point, we were about 50% company and 50% franchised. Uh, by the time I left, we were 95% franchised and 5% company. Okay. But at, at this point, we're about 50-50. Okay, so you get in your car, and you go into company stores now, right? Yes. So they know you're coming. No, and it, it was great the first year because nobody knew who I was. Okay. So I'd walk in. I remember I walked in my first Hardee's. It was in Rocky Mountain, North Carolina. I walked up to the front counter, and the young lady behind the counter was staring at me. I was staring at her, and she kept staring at me, and I kept staring at her. Yeah, you know, I, I wasn't a restaurant guy, but I thought maybe she should say, good morning, welcome to Hardee's, may I help you, or, you know, something to that effect. 
Uh, and so I, uh, I, I actually found a guy who'd been working at Hardy since he was 16. Uh, he was about, uh, he let's see, I was 50, he's probably in his late 30s. I put him in charge of operations for Hardee's. And we visited these restaurants together. And uh, I realized that the restaurants, as I said, the people were impolite. Uh, so we took, a, we created a script, we put it right on what I would call the cash register before I got this job. Now I know it's the POS system, the mm -hmm. point of sale system. And I put on a, it said, welcome to Hardee's, may I help you? and went through a whole script that you would read to consumers, uh, to customers when they came uh, and tried to order. We also set up a, a 10 point plan on how you run a really good restaurant. Uh, because there was this book, I went to the general manager's offices and there's this book, it was this thick, with how you run the perfect restaurant. And there were like inserts people would get once a week, they were laying on the floor, they were, nobody was reading this. You know. I, I went to school for 19 years. I was lucky if the guys running this restaurant or the gals running this restaurant graduated from high school. I mean, they weren't going to read this book. They weren't going to read the inserts. So we came up with a 10 point plan on how you run a really good restaurant. And the first point in that was scripting. So you'd have to answer, you know, you'd have to respond. Uh, once we put this point, 10 point plan in place, I went into one of the restaurants and the young lady behind the counter was again staring at me as I was staring back at her. And I, I walked behind the counter because she didn't know I was. And Noah was with me, Noah Griggs, the person I put in charge of operations. I went behind and I said, you know, aren't you supposed to read this script? And she kind of looked at me like, you know, who are you and what are you doing behind the counter at my restaurant? I said, my name's Andy Puzder. I'm the CEO. This is Noah Griggs. He's the chief operating officer. And we wrote this script and we really like you to read it. And she went, oh, I'm sorry, I normally read it. I just missed it this time. I said, no, you know who the most important person in this restaurant is? And she said, yeah, you. Mm. I said, no, it's not me, it's you. I said, because everything I do, everything our marketing people does, everything Noah does, is to get a person to stand where I was standing and look at you. And if you're happy, Hardy's is happy. If you're sad, Hardy's is sad. If you're polite, Hardy's is polite. If you're impolite, Hardy's is impolite, it's you. Well, you do that in about 10, 15 restaurants and the word starts to get around that the CEO's visiting. And wow. so that, that that was, I took a very hands-on ground level approach to trying to fix the restaurants. That's a long answer to your question, but that's the answer. No, no you know, I, what I love about it, it, it just goes back to when I research companies, uh, when I was, when I manage money and now with, with a, my investment newsletter, it's the simple things. It's not the complicated hierarchies and charts and, and, and decks and IR people. It's saying, hello, welcome to Hardee's. That's where it all starts. Everything else after that, if it, yep. if it doesn't, it doesn't matter. Because if the person's not there, you could have the greatest fries in the world. No one's going to ever know it. Yeah. Well, that's exactly right. And this, this, this was the mistake a, a lot of executives make. They get very focused on the finance. You, know, you need to pay attention to the financials. But if you're running a good restaurant or a good business, any kind of business with foot traffic, if you're polite to the customers, if you've got a good product, if you make the place that they're coming to desirable, the financial numbers are going to be fine. They're, they're, they're going to. But if you don't, if you don't have those basics in place, then your company's not going to succeed. Yeah. So I, I think that's a mistake that particularly people that go and get MBAs and never get jobs really never seem to understand that you can't run the company from the financials. You have to run it from the basic, from the customer's point of view. You know, some, uh, one of my son's friends asked me, uh, I want to go to school and become an MBA and learn about business. What's the best way to do it? I said, go on GoDaddy, buy a domain for $10, set up a website and open up a business, sell anything. 
you'll learn yep. in one month what cash flow is, what profit margins are, how to generate revenue, marketing, everything that you really need to run a successful business in 30 days and just get better at than sitting in school and reading books. There's nothing like doing you know, that. Nope. I, I think I learned my, my initial business experience. And I think the lessons that were most valuable to, to me throughout my career came from scooping ice cream at Baskin Robbins. I worked with a, there was a franchisee in my hometown of Chagrin Falls, Ohio. Uh, I was scooping ice cream. She, uh, she, you know, I, I ended up doing inventory. You know, you, you had to understand customer service. You, you got to make change in the register. I mean, all of the things that you would need to know to kind of run a business from the bottom up. Uh, gosh, I'll remember that, you know, the proudest day I think of my business career was when I went into this franchisee's office and, uh, and she handed me a key and said, uh, uh, you know, you're going to open in the morning. You're now the assistant manager. I think I got a 10 cent an hour raise. I was making a dollar. So it's like, you know, it's like a, a, a 10 cent an hour raise was a big deal. But, uh, but I, even the raise apart the next morning, I think I went in and we had the cleanest Baskin Robbins in America because I felt it's like yours. I had some ownership in it. Like I, like I earned something, I achieved something. That's the kind of thing that you get with an entry level position. You know, you, you, you get the pride and the, the, uh, that keeps you off the streets, that keeps you in school, you know, the self-confidence that really helps you go forward in life. You only get that with the job. And when I hear people complain about entry-level jobs or low, low wage positions while people learn, I, I, I remember those Baskin Robin days and how valuable they were to me. You know, and that's something that just uh, just as a side point, that's that's what capitalism's all about. Where socialism, I don't think any government worker wakes up and say, how could I figure out, maybe there are a few, how do I get to do this better? How can I make the IRS 1-800 number better? It's a government job. There's The incentive really isn't there because if you do great or you don't do great, you're still getting paid the same because they can't fire you based on you. Yeah. But it, when you like, do you think you think you could run? You think you could run the driver's license bureau better than this being run? <laughs> I mean, if, I, if it was a private company and they were competing with the driver's license bureau down the street, do you think service would improve? Do you think more people would get through the lines every day? I mean, it, it's those kinds of things that, yeah. uh, and there there are good-hearted people that work at these government agencies and are very committed to what they do. But I think you also tend to find people who don't feel that way and, and really aren't dedicated to the job, which is why socialist economies never succeed. Right. When you have pride of ownership, there is there is nothing that be when you have that key to that store, that was your store for all intents and purposes. Yep. You, you you mop that floor, you clean that floor, you welcome customers. There was an enthusiasm. I know when you start your own business, I've started several businesses. When you start something from nothing, which is really just a lawyer's, um, the black book with the corporate things, that's the starting point. Now I'm in my own business, I have my own LLC or corporation. Yep. And you get that first customer and you do it. There is nothing that seems impossible. I agree. I, actually, I have a grandson who started working at a McDonald's in Phoenix. And he calls me every couple of weeks to report on his progress and what his boss said to him, told him how what a great job he did, how he's got some money in the bank. Now, that's a kid I'm not worried about. I'm not worried about where that guy, where he'll end up in his life. He's uh, he's on the right track, and you you, you got to get you've got to get that that feeling of self respect and dignity. You've got to get on that ladder of opportunity to really do anything meaningful with your life. And that's I think that's why people in the United States tend to succeed is because we have the opportunity to do that. And you get that feedback almost immediately when the marketplace rewards you and beats a path to your door and you do something right and you start gaining market share. And then all of a sudden, lo and behold, you start making money. You don't go in it to make money yep. first. You go in it because usually it's a passion. 
Yeah, and for a lot of people, it's an education. You know, when I when I was running Carl's Jr. and Hardy's, nothing made me happier than to find, you know, we, we would have a lot of people that came to this country as immigrants or that were from a socioeconomic background where they really couldn't go to college. They couldn't really get the kind of education that maybe I had access to and or didn't want to. They wanted to get right into business and start working. There was nothing better to than to see a young man or a young woman who started out cleaning the restroom and cleaning off the the uh, the, the drink bar end up managing a restaurant. You know, managers could make sixty to eighty thousand dollars a year in salary plus bonus, and then to see that person become a franchisee and actually own their own businesses, it was that nothing was more satisfying than watching than watching people go through that process. But it all started with an entry level job where they got an education, and it was an education where they got paid. It just wasn't in a college or a university. And then today, I'm, I'm not sure, unless you're in a, one of the STEM professions, uh, I don't know that going to a college or university really teaches you very much in any event. You know, Dennis uh, Prager, who we had on the show a while back, said exactly that. He goes, other than STEM, there's no reason to be going to college, which is just, uh, it just goes 180 to the way every, the, the mantra was all these years, you know, pay the big fifty, sixty thousand dollars $60,000 a year tuitions, go into debt because that... College degree means so much, and now with the pandemic, uh, people working anywhere, and 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 the and really, it's you're being judged on your abilities, not so much what college you graduate. It just turned that on its head. It it has turned and and it has turned it on its head, and I, I think the colleges and universities have also kind of seeded um, uh, their position as the as people that impart wisdom. I don't think colleges and universities really impart wisdom anymore. They're either imparting a political viewpoint or they're imparting knowledge, which is different than wisdom. But they're they're teaching people how to do things in these STEM careers, um, which is great. You know, if you want to be an engineer, you want to be a scientist, uh, even if you want to go to law school, you know, you need to go to college and major in something that helps you in law school. But as far as uh, what we used to associate with university educations, which is you went there and you came out a wiser person, I, uh, I, I really don't see that it's happening anymore. Yeah. So getting back to Hardy's for a minute, Carl Jr. So you started off with a very simple plan of just going out and seeing, getting the lay of the land. So you weren't the general sitting yes. back waiting for your lieutenants to report. You went out into the battlefield. You saw what it was. Okay. So you do that. I have a business. The first thing I want to do is make sure my customers are being, being greeted well. That's the first moment of truth. You still have, and, I, and I, I, just, I just think how difficult the restaurant business is because you could do something a hundred times perfectly and a hair is on a frankfurter, you lost that customer. Or the bathroom is dirty. How do you keep that standard of excellence every day and train all your people and keep that humming throughout 3,000 plus stores? Well, you really need to have systems in place that encourage that. For example, it, it, Hardee's, when I took over, was it, they were sort of the jack of all trades, the master of none. They would have a new discount product every week or two and, uh, and, and ignored, number one, discount products, you don't make a lot of money. And number two, if, you, if you're taking these people that are working in the restaurants and you're overwhelming them with new products, they're not going to perform very well. So, so, Andy, said, so, Andy, give me an example. What is a discounted product? What do you mean by that? Well, if, you, if you've got, I, I don't know, a taco for 39 cents or, you know, a hamburger for 49 cents, you know, any kind of product that that uh, sells below a dollar, I think, would have been back then considered a discount product. Now, we've had inflation since then, but I think a dollar was the cutoff back okay, then. Okay, so people come in the store for the cheap prices, and that's not a good thing because? 
Well, they, you know, it's like the more you sell, the more you lose. You know, you, you've got, you've got to put a lot of labor into for making mm-hmm. the. It takes just as much labor to make a forty-nine cent hamburger than it does to t- make a three-dollar hamburger. You know, it's not they're not the labor's not going to change, and you've also got uh, you you've got your uh, your cost of goods. Uh, you've got to pay the rent. You've got to pay the utility. So you've got all of these uh, expenses of running the business dependent on a discount product. You're not going to have enough profit to make it worthwhile keeping your doors open. You know, you've got to have you have to have products where you can make a profit. And it's very difficult to do that when you're selling only discount products. You know, we had Carl's Jr. was selling more premium products and they had a very limited menu, just burgers, basically a chicken sandwich. They had charbroilers, which is like a conveyor belt. You put a burger on on one end, it comes out the other end, tasting like it was made on your grill. Hardee's had all of these cooking systems and they fried chicken and they made burgers. And I just, you, you, it was a very, very complicated operation. And the way I found that out was I actually set up a day where all of the employees at the corporate office had to work in a restaurant. Oh, wow. Well, I, I was running both brands. So I worked in a restaurant for both brands. I worked in a Carl's Jr. And in the morning, you know, breakfast wasn't really a big day part for Carl's. We were talking about the Angels game or, you know, I mean, everybody's just kind of getting ready for lunch. Lunch dinner was very fast, but we had been prepared the charbroiler cooked everything. We took the food out to the table. It was pretty simple. The restaurant made a lot of money. It had a very high sales volume and it, it, employees were happy. I then worked at Hardee's, which has a big breakfast day part. At breakfast, we were slammed. Everybody was working their butts off. Uh, then lunch, dinner comes. And by the way, at Hardee's, they made the biscuits from scratch, which is great. They still do, but very, very complicated processes. Lunch, dinner, they had roast beef, they had fried chicken, they had hamburgers, they had all of these different products that they were making. By the end of the day, I was exhausted. I, I said, I don't know how I don't know how people do this job for what they're being paid because I don't work this hard and I make a lot more money than they do. This is this was just too difficult. So, what was, we it, simplified. What, what was the difficulty about it? What was it? The actual preparation or just so many processes and and and, and, and different products? Yeah, you're running you're running all over the place. You know, you're trying to make sure the fr- the the fried chicken is fresh because if it's not, you've got to throw it out. You got to make sure the roast beef is being cooked and ready when people order a roast beef sandwich. You're making hamburgers on the grill means you're flipping them. You're not running them through a charbroiler. So we went and we put uh, we reduced. I took 40 items off the menu at Hardee's. Uh, we decided to sell big, juicy, delicious burgers. That was going to be at both brands. That was something that we had done that nobody had ever done before. That was a uh, uh, an innovation that I think really saved Hardee's. We kind of changed the burger industry in that respect and uh, and made the processes a lot simpler so that it wasn't so difficult to work at the restaurant, something I would really never have had a good grip on if I hadn't gone and worked in a restaurant myself to find out what was going on. Uh, and when once we did that, uh, Hardee's, the customer ratings, uh, the, customer, the measurements of customer satisfaction started to improve, sales started to improve, profits started to improve, uh, and it really happened very, very quickly after that. You know, listening to you talk, it seems so simple and logical. Why don't most CEOs get it like, and leave their office and stop reading reports that underlings are trying to win favor with them and go out to the field and be a customer or flip a burger? You know, there really is nothing easier than when you take over a company, you put your feet up on the desk and you start reading the reports and talking to the people who are visiting your restaurants or the people you know, who re- the ones that report to them uh, or who they report to. Uh, it, it's an easy temptation. Uh, and I think that's why a lot of businesses fail. I think a lot of businesses that do well for years and years and years 
uh, eventually fail because the executives in the company, the leadership in the company loses touch with why they're in business and what's going on at the business. And um, I, 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 I could point to examples, but I don't want to pick on anybody here, but I think everybody knows examples of companies that were incredibly successful and then lost touch with their audience, lost touch with their consumers and uh, and failed. I, so I, I, I don't know why that happens. I, I can't tell you why it happens, but I, I do see it happening. But it's so amazing, the barrier to entry to becoming a much better manager, much better CEO is so low. It means getting in your car, driving to a store, or driving and being the customer for a day. You learn so much in such a small span of time that can change the business. You didn't do any rocket science from what I'm listening to what you're saying. There was no rocket science that you did here. No, and, and I guess one example would be, let's take the car industry. I mean, the car industry be became such a behemoth. Uh, the American car industry in the 50s and 60s, even in the early 70s, was you know was the, the world leader. I mean, it, we had the best cars. Go buy a go buy a Ford or a Chevy from the 1960s. You know, get a Corvette or a Mustang. These are well built cars. My wife has a 49 Ford F1 pickup truck. I mean, it's as solid as a rock. I mean, it's you know these these were great cars. We somehow in that period of time they got focused on things other than making the best quality cars or cars that met people's needs. And you saw the American car industry start to decay uh, while foreign car manufacturers began to succeed. And then you see somebody like Elon Musk come in and, uh, and come up with a car that actually meets people's needs. You know, he's, he's out there meeting the needs, the current needs, what people are looking for in a car. And, uh, and I believe now, uh, if I'm not mistaken, Tesla is actually worth more. It has a higher market cap than Ford or General Motors or Chrysler or any of the other seven major car companies. I think so if, you, if you combine it, them, I don't think it comes out to what Tesla's worth. It, it's amazing. I mean, he's, he's an amazing guy and, and uh, you know, he, he's somebody who will historically be remembered as an amazing guy. Uh, but that, that's what you need to do. I, I, and I think, I think Elon Musk knew what people wanted. I, I see him out there in the factories. I see him out there talking to people. Uh, he's a brilliant guy, but he, he keeps in touch with what consumers are looking for. And I think that's why he's been successful. So someone listening to this who's about to, who wants to start a business, uh, what's the best piece of advice you could give them? Uh, do something you love and be the best at it and find your own niche. You got to find a way to distinguish yourself from the competition. At Carl's and Hardy's, we did that. Uh, we introduced something called the $6 burger, which was a burger that cost, it was the $6 burger, only $3.99. And I remember our Coca-Cola representative came to me when I when we came out with this idea and said, you know, Andy, you can't sell a burger at a fast food restaurant for four dollars. And I said, yeah, but we're going to advertise it as worth six dollars. <laughs> so we had these advertisements, uh, Carl's and Hardy's, a six dollar burger, only three ninety nine. And, uh, and quite honestly, it sold like hotcakes. Uh, it really they really saved the company and was the basis for our recovery. So you have to find some way to distinguish yourself. So people want to drive by, in our case, drive past a McDonald's, drive past a Wendy's, drive past a Burger King, an In-N-Out, a Five Guys, a Shake Shack. Why would I drive past those to get to a Hardee's or a Carl's? Well, if you can answer that for your business, whatever business you're in, uh, you're probably going to be successful. So do you think that's a question that many entrepreneurs, many people who start businesses do not, they never ask that question? Well, I, I think there probably are a lot of businesses where that they really don't ask themselves that. They get focused on how can I be profitable? How can I cut costs? How can I, you know, can I get it? I, you've got to be focused on why people would choose to come to you or buy your product rather than anybody else's or even somebody else's. 
Uh, and if you if you can come up with an answer to that, then it has to be something you believe in in your heart. Because if you're going to run the company, the company is going to reflect who you are. You have to believe in your heart what you're doing with that company, and then you go for it. Uh, so, put all you got into it. So prior to prior to you turning around Hardy's and Carl Jr.'s, they didn't have that. There was nothing that differentiated them from the other fast food restaurants. Uh, there were, you know, when they were when they were opened, there was. You know, but over time, they became companies become bureaucratic, and over time, they you get focused on what you've been doing, right? And you don't look at what you should be doing. And I think we had some great people running Carl's and Hardy's. Made some great decisions, even in the even in the years just before I took over. Uh, people I had a lot of respect for, but they got they got overly focused on where they were and how to fix what they had, rather than looking to what they should become. And I think you always have to look to what you should become. I, I actually retired. I, I told uh, the private equity firm that had bought us, I told them in January of 2016 that uh, I, I, I thought it was time for a new younger CEO because when I, when I took over, when I was 50 years old, I understood what our clients wanted, young hungry guys, that's who we marketed to, uh, guys that were 30 years old and younger. And, uh, and by the time I was 65, I don't think I was in touch with that anymore. So I said, look, we could keep work. The company's doing fine. We could keep doing this, but I think we need somebody to come in to run it who has more of a connection with this millennial generation, which I'm still not sure I understand very well. <laughs> but uh, we need somebody who understands this generation, and I'm not that guy. Um, so it's it, it's also knowing knowing when to step back and let somebody else take over. I think is important too. Well, how's Hardy's done since you left? Uh, well, they were a private company, so they didn't report their results. I think they had a couple of rugged years, but I, I, I think they've gotten back on track. Look, the, the pandemic has been uh, very, very helpful to restaurant chains with drive throughs And they've appointed an, a new CEO, somebody who, who used to, uh, he ran the international uh, division at, uh, at Carl's and Hardy's for me when I was CEO and did a tremendous job of growing that division from basically nothing uh, to about a thousand restaurants in 40 different countries. And he's now running the company. He's now running the company. And I have every confidence he'll be doing a spectacular, a spectacular job. When you left Hardee's, how many people were employed? Hardee's and Carl's Jr.? Well, if you include the franchisees and you include international, it's probably about 125,000 people. See, that's what gets me. One guy with a Frankfurter stand would never yes. dream that 125,000 people, and then you look at Jeff Bezos, for example, when he's working out of his garage, that he's going to employ a million people, giving them food on their table, dignity, a way of life that they would have never had, opportunity, all from one person with one idea. Just just boggles my mind. I think his first day in business, Carl's did about $28 in business. Uh, my last year, we did $4 billion in business. So, I mean, it's it's all from a guy in a hot dog stand. Uh, this, that's America. That's capital. You meet people's needs and you can succeed tremendously. So I want to just shift to this for a second. Getting America back to work. What motivated you to write this? Well, a lot of it came out of uh, comments made by uh, prominent Democrats, in, including uh, Joe Biden. Uh, their statement was that the pandemic was a, um, an, an, a tremendous opportunity to fundamentally transform America. Well, America didn't need to be 
fundamentally transformed. If you look at America going into the pandemic, thanks to President Trump, in 2019, we had the most incredible labor market in the history, maybe of the world, but certainly of the country. I mean, it was, uh, you, you had the lowest unemployment rate in 50 years. You had more people working than it ever worked in the history of the country. Uh, for every month in 2019, we had nearly a, a million or more people, a million or more job openings than people unemployed. Because employers were competing for employees every month, saw 3% or better wage growth. None of those things happened during the Obama administration, zero. They had zero months with more job openings and people unemployed and zero months with 3% or better wage growth. The result was the biggest increase in family income since they've been recording the data to the highest level of family income since they've been reporting the data and the biggest decline in poverty since they've been recording the data, which is 1959 to the lowest poverty rate since they've been recording and the I think, data. By the way, that just, was 2019. Just to interject here, I think I also saw that the number of people who got off food stamps were 5 million or so. I'm not sure about the number, but it was a pretty sizable amount. A tremendous amount and income inequality declined. So I'm thinking like, why would you want to fundamentally transform that? Uh, this is what, and this is what they were talking about. They want to go back to the Obama era, where the government, you know, you had the the government stimulus, which stimulated nothing. Got, businesses were overregulated. Taxes went up. This this is the this is the Obama plan, and Joe Biden wants to put that plan on steroids and plans on using the pandemic as the excuse to do so because the economy got in such bad shape. Well, in fact. While the economy was in terrible shape when we shut it down, which we did in March and April, since then we've had the most dynamic Amazing. jobs recovery in the history of the country. We've also had the highest GDP in the history of the country. We had, it was at 33.4% in the in the third quarter, and we're looking at, uh, at something in excess of 10% for fourth quarter. These are tremendous record setting numbers all that's going to come. To, I, I'm really very concerned about this Georgia election. Uh, what's going to happen with Georgia in the Senate? This, is, if the Democrats are allowed to do what they want to do, you know, people are going to be paid more to stay home than they are to work, which is what's happening now. Uh, people that are working and producing income are going to be discouraged from working and producing income. People are going to be discouraged from opening businesses because it's going to be very difficult to be profitable. And we're going to lose all of the gains we made 2017 to 2019. So we need to get America back to work. We need for people to start working at those Baskin and Robin jobs, uh, to start you know, working at a Hardee's or a Carl's and ended up owning a Hardee's or a Carl's or whatever fast food chain or whatever retail business they like. We need to get people back um, to enjoying their lives and being productive. And uh, that's not the current plan. So that's why I wrote the booklets. And, uh, don't you see a big problem also with, um, with the unemployment insurance that we're giving people that it's so hard for private enterprise to hire people because they make more money by staying home and, and getting a government check. And this is the danger of these government checks. When it was passed, I actually um, I, I actually was involved in discussions with Secretary Mnuchin at the time. The reason that people were supportive of these big checks was because we didn't want people to work. We wanted people to stop working so we could stop the spread of the virus. Well, we did 
we, we did slow the spread of the virus. We didn't have that, you know, we did level the bell curve. We haven't eliminated the virus, but we leveled the bell curve. So hospitals weren't overwhelmed, but the, but the payments continue. The payments continue. It's hard. It's once you provide a benefit, it's hard to cut it back. And when you make it more, when you make it more economically uh, wise for people to stay home than to work, then then you're 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 punishing people that go to work. It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't allow people to get the satisfaction uh, that you get with a job. It doesn't allow people to take advantage of the opportunities that come in a capitalist society where you can improve your life and improve the lives of others. It sends us back to a government-dependent society, which is really what the socialists want. I mean, this is their this is the idea. They want. To, they've been working at this for a hundred years now. Uh, they want a a a, a, a people dependent on them, uh, and they will do very well. You notice in socialist countries that the leaders are always look at Maduro in uh, in Venezuela. I you know, or look at Kim Jong Un in North Korea. So look like that guy's missed a meal. I mean, the people are starving in North Korea. Uh, you know, so this is the people at the top do very well. It's everybody else that suffers. And uh, and I'm, I was wrote these booklets because I was very concerned that Democrats would be trying to drive us into that kind of economy. And how how fearful are you that they are doing that? Uh, very fearful there. If you look at look at Joe Biden's go to his website and look at the at the programs he's proposed. They're all increased taxes, increased government spending take wealth from those that earned it. Uh, it it's, it's a disaster for American businesses and for American jobs. There isn't one program. He doesn't have one proposal where he comes out and says, this is how I'm going to create jobs for the American people. This is how I'm going to encourage businesses to grow. This is how I'm going to encourage people to work. It's all about taxing and regulating businesses, taxing and regulating the people that create wealth, and encouraging people not to not to work by providing them uh, benefits so substantial that there's no incentive to work. I'm just throwing this out there because I don't we don't know the answer. But do you think career politicians who never who never had a sleepless night because they didn't know if they were going to make payroll or be able to pay the rent or deal with a customer, how in touch could they possibly be with the economy as a career politician? Well, they're, they're clearly completely out of touch. And I think the, the economic lockdowns that they're imposing right now demonstrate that. I, I get calls from small business uh, restaurateurs, particularly in California, who call me in tears. They're losing everything because of these economic lockdowns. When it, in Santa Barbara, for example, I got a call from uh, a, very, a close friend who runs uh, Trattoria Mali's in uh, my favorite Italian restaurant in Santa Barbara. Santa Barbara, you can eat outside every day of the year. And the, the government had her put up plastic barriers, do everything she could to protect the health of the people there. They've now shut that down. Now, I got to tell you, Gavin Newsom shut that down. Gavin Newsom isn't worried about his paycheck coming through. He isn't worried about what, how, what his employees are going to do. They're all on the government dole. He isn't worried about whether he's going to miss a meal. You know, people that work in that restaurant are now worried that they're going to miss a meal. And the reason is that people in government have no understanding of the damage they're doing. Now look at Florida, Florida, they haven't done that. Florida is doing very well. They have a low unemployment rate, California, New York, you've got unemployment rates over 9% or over 8% and uh, New Jersey's over 10%. These people have no idea what they're doing to the economy and the people in their States. It's uh, and that's another reason that I wrote the pamphlets. And how is it being received now? 
Uh, the pamphlets are being received well. They're, uh, they're, I, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping with your program they'll be received even, even better. There's, this is not something that uh, you're, we're going to make a tremendous amount of money off of. It's something that was done uh, to get the word out there. And as you pointed out earlier, they're easy to read. They're inexpensive. Uh, and they are available on Amazon, yeah, yeah, <laughs> as well as through Encounter Books. Roger Kimball does these. This is, I think, he's got about sixty of these. He runs Encounter Books. Great guy, very smart guy. Yeah, I think they're up to close to seventy. I think I saw last night on Amazon. They keep coming out with them. And what I like about these is, I don't know how many words you would say. What maybe. 50, no, what am I talking about? 5,000 words. So first of all, you could sit and read this in one sitting. That's number one. Number two, I I just read yours, so I can't speak to the others. Uh, Your writing style is very fluid. It's very breezy. You don't get caught up in jargon and not even for a lawyer, but for a writer. Damn good. And and (laughs) you make the point. So uh, what I love about this is that most books should be about this size. It, but it's filled with another 200 pages of just fluff in order to sell it for 29.95. This, I think, I would, I'd love to see these little, these little uh, broadsides become, uh, become the standard because in most books, there's only a couple of good pages of, of content and the rest is just reason to sell it for 30 bucks. Well, Thomas Paine did pretty well with his. So common we'll, sense, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good model. That's a good model. They're, uh, that's what these are modeled after. And, I, I, uh, I, you know, they're, and they're supposed to have that, that kind of impact. Uh, so we'll see. So, so what are you doing now to spread this message? Now that you're retired, uh, I'm sure you, your your life is filled with a whole. You're probably busier now than you were when you worked full time. So, uh, <laughs> what what is what is that's what, that's what my my wife keeps saying? When does this retirement thing actually start? It never know? does, right? It never does. If you want to get something <laughs> done, ask a busy person because that's the only yeah. way things get done. What's 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 the Andy uh, Buster story now? Uh, I'm doing television. I do Fox News. I've done some Newsmax and OANN, Fox Business. I was just on this morning. Um, I do. Uh, I, I love to speak at colleges and universities. I do that uh, independently. Uh, people will call me at times to do that, but I also do with the Young America's Foundation, which is a great group. Uh, I've spoken at Prager University events, also for Turning Point USA, another great group. Uh, and I and I write a lot of op-eds. I write a lot of opinion pieces for the Wall Street Journal, Fox News, uh, the Washington Post, uh, which surprises some people, but they uh, they run my pieces as well. Uh, Real Clear Politics, which is a great place, um, really to get the uh, views from both sides of the political aisle. It's always great to write with them. So I'm doing everything I can, everything I can think of, uh, and podcasts like this to try and get the word out about capitalism, economic freedom. Liberty. Uh, I think Ronald Reagan, uh, he said many things best, but one of the things he said best was freedom is always but one generation away from extinction. And I'm very concerned that we may be living with that generation now. So I want to make sure we get the word out to them before it's too late. And what do you think all these all these outlets are? Because a lot of people write into them and want to be published and and have their uh, their opinion piece. Why? What do you think your message is getting out there that something like the, from the Washington Post to all the way to the other side, Fox News, Real Clear Politics, how are all these extremes listening to you or wanting to listen to what you have to say? Uh, well, I think one of it is I'm, I'm now 70 years old, so I've got some experience in how to try and, uh, and present these things to people in a way that they don't find offensive. Uh, and and I, I, that, that's, uh, you have to write, clearly and specifically 
and with a point. And I, groups that are willing to listen to both sides generally will accept a, a piece that's written without the, you know, the, the nastiness or the sarcasm that, uh, that we see often too, much too often on, on Twitter and Facebook. Uh, and other social social media outlets, and I, I think you know, having been a trial lawyer for 16 years, you you uh, you learn how to address uh, broad groups of people because you have to convince these people that sit on these juries, and uh, they're going to they're going to be from very diverse backgrounds. So I think that I think my experience as a lawyer was helpful. My experience in business has been helpful, uh, and uh, and I just. I just really enjoy writing. So I think that that may come through as well. Outstanding, outstanding. Before we go, I just want to just throw one idea at you. I think, I hope there's a, another book in your future on how to start a business, but all of the business fundamentals you talked about. Uh, there are a lot of great books on, on a whole bunch of subjects, but nothing as simple as what you're talking about, especially with your writing style, of an, anyone taking this book and understanding, like reading the customer the simple things, the 10 point process. I think that would be an outstanding thing that you could uh, contribute to uh, American business. Uh, it would be a fun book to write too. I will, uh, I'll, I will keep that in mind. Uh, and when you do write, you know, we've got some time before I get the vaccine. So maybe I can start now. And when you do, it's on this show that we talk about it first. <laughs> that sounds great, John. All right, before I let you go, one last thing and then we'll stop here. What are your what are your biggest concerns over the next four years? We have Biden and we have Kamala Harris. That combo, who knows how it's going to play out over the next four years? What's the biggest concern that keeps you up at night? Uh, well, I guess it's the attempts to take what President Trump accomplished for the economy, and I'm going to leave aside what he accomplished in the Middle East or in foreign policy. Just stick with the economy. Uh, that to take what he accomplished with the economy, attempt to attribute it to things that had nothing to do with it, such as the Obama administration policies, and attempt to use the pandemic, uh, you know, which was a worldwide event, not an event that uh, Trump started or that just happened in the United States, and to try and use the, the pandemic to demean what we saw in 2019 where this country could go, how we could benefit working people. 2019 should be called the year of the worker. It was an incredible year. And uh, I'd like to make sure and get the message out there that, that people understand that the policies that led to that incredible year are policies we can reenact. They're policies that any president could pursue and they're, pres they're policies we need to get back to. And I'm concerned uh, that the mainstream media, the entertainment industry, and the uh, the tech sector are all trying to suppress that information. So I, I do worry about the suppression of information. That's probably something we should have talked about. It, uh, what the tech sector is doing, what they did with uh, the Hunter Biden scandal prior to the election, those kinds of things are reprehensible, and we need to find a way to deal with them. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm living in New York. We get the New York Post, and there was just uh, – <laughs> I never thought I'd see something like that where they just – First of all, they banned the New York Post. That's scary, really scary. Our freedoms are just this far away from being taken away from us. And living yes, in New York are. and watching what Governor Cuomo did and Mayor de Blasio making up their own rules and regulations, being extremely uh, uh, subjective as to the science they were using and destroying, destroying New York City, destroying New York City. Uh, you look around, you say, what happened to our rights? And all, the, all these people for years who were talking about, be careful, your rights are really a, a privilege. You have to fight for them and make sure they just went away like that. 
And and it's not uh, they're not backing off. I mean, it, it doubling this down. is going to continue. They're doubling yeah, down. They're doubling down. And uh, you know, as look, the American people. There are places in the country where the American people are standing up. Uh, I've seen instances of that in New York, but certainly other parts of the country where people are saying enough is enough. Uh, and you know, we need to do that more. We can't we can't let these statists, these big government socialists. Uh, deprive us of our freedoms and liberties. We've given too much as a people to achieve them and to keep them. Too many people have died. Too many lives have been sacrificed to make sure that we could live free. Uh, and I just hope that the next generation understands that and begins to pursue policies that promote freedom and liberty. Yeah, and and I'm sure Andy, you keep doing the you know the good work. Keep keep carrying on the on the on the fight. Uh, keep writing, keep doing that, hopefully for the next 30, 40 years, because uh, it makes an impact. And your your clarity and your vision of where we are and where we should be is is just bright as day. It's it's it's, it's evident. And I, I think uh, if you just keep doing what you're doing, you're going to make a huge, continue to make a huge impact. Thanks, Charles. And you as well. Uh, these podcasts are great. You keep it up. You're doing a great job. Beautiful. And a big service. Beautiful. Thank you, Andy. It's been my my really my pleasure, my honor to have you on the show. And I hope you come back again because I'd love to talk. I could talk to you for hours. Anytime. You just let me know. Great. I'll be back. Thank you, Andy. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Charles Mizrahi Show. If you're a new listener, welcome. If you've been listening for a while, we're glad to have you back. Either way, We'd love to know what you think of the show. Please leave a review if you listen on Apple Podcasts. Reviews make it easier for others to find the show. You can also see the video of the interview on the Charles Mizrahi Show channel on YouTube.